Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Washington School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions in education, but today we're going to talk through some of the educational issues of the day in search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. Today, we're going to talk about parental rights in education. Um, a topic which has been getting a lot of attention of, uh, you know, in recent months. Uh, Pedro, I mean, maybe let's just start off at 30,000 feet. How do you think about, I mean, you served on the school board, it's a time. How do you think about this whole question of parental rights? You know, and like you, I'm also a parent. And um, so I certainly understand how important parents are. And I, and I feel every parent has the right and a responsibility to be an advocate for their children and to make sure they get what they need and deserve. The, the, the challenge comes where parents' advocacy for their children infringes, infringes upon the roles and responsi- professional responsibilities of educators and or the other rights of parents. That is what, might be, what one parent might see as being good for their child may not be good for other children. Uh, I'm thinking for an now, example now, the masking. You know, we had parents who were advocating that their kids not wear masks when we know very well they were teachers and other kids who were vulnerable. This, to me, is um, problematic, to say the least. You know, sometimes we have to uh, compromise and we have to be considerate of the needs of others. And um, I worry that that often uh, parents only think about their children and not the other children their kids are in school with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's well said. I mean, I think the masking example is an interesting one, partly because we're like past the most emotional part of it. And and it seems to me like there wasn't much resistance to masking, say, in fall 2020. Um, You know, in that first three or six months, it wasn't a big deal. I I think it was as people as, as, you know, as people started to see the kids uh, were not generally uh, threatened by this as teachers had the opportunity to get vaccinated, um, that the question became, well, wait a minute, which way should the burden lie? Should it still be the expectation that everybody needs to mask? Or should the expectation be that those individuals and families who want to mask, uh, mask, but they don't have the right to impose their preferences on everyone? I don't know. How do you, you, I mean, like when you sat on the school board, because these are both questions of, what we think is right for our kids, that they should be masked or shouldn't be masked. But there's also these collective implications. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's hard to set what the rule should be. Um, you know, the reasonable standard to me is uh, that we should be considerate of others, even as we're also very concerned about our own individual children and finding the right balance is, I think, the, the, the difficulty. I, I remember one time I had a parent while I was on the board, who came to me, who was very upset because her son had been um, identified teachers by teachers as being in need of special education. And um, she felt it was unfair. And she felt that he was being uh, uh, targeted uh, because he was a black boy. And um, I said, and then, so she told me about it. And I said, I'm willing to go to the school um, visit where your son is. 
and um, and and just see what's going on. And and it was the school was very close to where the um, where I lived, and so I showed up with her, and we sat in the back of the room and watched her son as he proceeded to disrupt the classroom for everyone else. <laughs> and um, afterwards, I when we went outside. I said, "Well, what did you see?" I said, well, he's restless. I said, but did you also see that he was interfering with all the other kids and the teacher was not able to teach the class? And she said, yeah, but what about him? What about his rights? I said, well, that's where we have to think about the rights of the other kids as well. And I, I think, you know, when I was in that role, I had to hear her concerns. As a, as a parent, I understood it. She wanted to make sure her child was being treated fairly, that he was getting what he needed and deserved. But she was less concerned about the impact on that classroom and, and the other children. And I see this play out often um, in many schools um, where there's a kind of very narrow focus by parents on my child and uh, not as much concern about others. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic lens. And actually, I think it lends itself to the issue of the hour, which is, of course, Florida's Parental Bill of Rights, which <laughs> other states are looking at. And, and, but, but I think the interesting thing for me is that I think folks on both sides claim to be living up to the ideal that you've just sketched. You know, this is the bill for listeners who don't follow this stuff closely. This is the bill that has been labeled by the Democrats and, the, and the, the New York Times of the world is don't say gay. What the bill actually says is that teachers aren't supposed to um, have instruction with kids in grades K to three about issues of gender or sexuality. And that after grade three, it ought to be age and grade appropriate. And that parents have rights to uh, complain or even file suit. I'm totally not crazy about the file suit stuff. Um, but, the, but the general framework here seems real reasonable to me. That like there are obviously individual children um, who may be having issues of the, you know, related to gender and sexuality in, in grades K to three. I don't think that's the norm. I think that's a relatively small number of children. And in my experience, you might have something different. I've known very few K-3 teachers who are eager to talk about gender or sexuality in class. I mean, it seems to me like this is a broadly accepted kind of intuition. It's weird, I agree, that Florida felt the need to legislate on it. But I think the legislation is a response to trainers and advocates running around the country who are saying in professional development, who are telling superintendents, who are telling teachers, you have to show these kids, um, you have to give them instruction on the, the LGBT unicorn in kindergarten. You have to uh, explain to first graders about pronouns and about gender identity. And it seems to me that these aren't people who live in those communities. These aren't the teachers who I think generally would rather talk about universal themes that apply to all children, whatever their gender identity about love and acceptance. But these make, I think, parents of a lot of kids in those classrooms feel like their kids are being uh, proselytized, are being sold an ideological agenda at an age of six or seven or eight when they're too young to make sense of it or even understand that it's an ideological agenda. And so I think they've pushed back in the form of this legislation. And now, obviously, I understand that my friends who disagree with this say, wait a minute, you guys are now calling out and victimizing trans children or, you know, you know, gay children. And I understand that they think they're speaking up for kids other than their own. 
I think the tr- that that's also the case on the right, and I don't think that's generally understood, at least in a lot of the popular narratives around this stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of complexity here, but let's 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 face it: there are lots of kids who have been raised by parents of the same gender, right? So, and and other kids are going to be curious: why does Johnny have two dads um, or two moms? And uh, to say we can't talk about that is is I think unrealistic. Kids are going to ask questions, and uh, and I think teachers need to be able to talk them now. Whether or not that means they're having a conversation about sexuality is another thing. But they're also going to have kids in the class who are saying, because my, my daughter's experienced already, that they are now um, more comfortable in a different gender identity and want to be called by another name. Um, what does the teacher do with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so um, to simply shut it down and say we're not going to talk about it, um, I think is unrealistic. Um, and not only unrealistic, I think it... Uh, it, it, it really puts undue uh, threat on teachers uh, who are faced with how do I respond to these issues as they arise? And realistically, they will arise. And we live in a diverse society where everybody's not comfortable talking about it, but we're seeing it and we have to get used to it because people are not going back into the closet. So, I mean, I wonder if there's, if there's you know, a, a kind of an 80% common ground here. Because look, I, I don't disagree with the way you just talked about it. Sure. You know, we, we, you know, all of us who've talked have in the last couple of decades have had kids uh, from, you know, whose parents are same sex. And yeah. And I've never, I taught high school. I never, you know, and I think you're the same, you know, I never taught K3, but I do know, you know, you and I both know that little kids, seven-year-olds talk, you know, they ask a lot of really uh, potentially complicated questions. They talk about death a lot sometimes. Um, They lose a grandparent or they see a carcass on the side of the road and they ask about death. They ask where babies come from. And it seems to me that we've expected, especially early elementary teachers over time, to develop a repertoire where they give kids enough information that kids don't feel like they're being ignored, but they're not getting into age-inappropriate conversations about death or mortality or notions of faith and afterlife that that's that's just not really what second grade classrooms are set up to do. So I, I guess I wonder if, and I feel, you know, I know my friends on the left feel like the Florida bill, for instance, is aggressive. To me, it feels defensive. It feels like there are broadly shared community norms. I think this country is, you know, the polling suggests hugely accepting of gay marriage hugely accepting of the idea that, you know, trans youth or trans adults have the right not to be harassed or picked on or insulted or bullied, that they should be protected by all of the same civil rights protections that we all enjoy. But I wonder if you can't have that in school, that kids can ask that question, that teachers can address it, can explain, say, sure, you know, that's right, Doug's got two fathers. Some kids have two mothers, some have a mom and a dad. And kind of like explain that this is part and parcel of like living in a community, but that we don't need to get into these trainings, which some of these folks from these advocacy groups are going out and pushing and wanting teachers to tell kids that there are 53 possible gender identities. And they want first grade teachers using, you know, the rainbow unicorn to teach kids about cisgender. It doesn't strike me as anti-gay or anti-trans to say, for parents to say, 
I don't want schools getting into that with my kid. We'll handle that at least before, at least by before grade three, that we believe those conversations belong at home. But at the same time, acknowledging that when kids do raise it up, when they do bring it up, that they deserve to be heard, that schools should make accommodations. It seems to me that we've turned this into more of an either or than actually serves kids or than is actually necessary. And this is why I think what the state of Florida did was a huge mistake and wrong because, you know, they, I think it would have been different had this governor and, this, and the legislature said, here's some guidance on how schools should address these issues. These are things we think you should do. These are things we think you shouldn't do. I, that would be reasonable uh, because I think guidance is needed and they should obviously draw on experts because in my opinion, education should be nonpartisan. I think what the governor's done is made it highly partisan and highly political and uh, now place teachers in a position where they're worried that they may say the wrong thing and be sued uh, because a, a child asks an innocent question. You know, you just said that now we have huge acceptance of gay marriage. I remember when we didn't have huge acceptance of gay marriage not that long ago. I remember my son, my oldest son, asking me, um, while he was still in high school, he said, uh, what do... I asked him, what do you think of gay marriage? Because I wasn't sure what I thought of it. And he said, well, who else are they supposed to marry? And I said, wow, <laughs> that's so profound and so simple because I was making it much more complicated than he was. And so I was already seeing that my son thinking about these issues had evolved. Um, I saw recently my, my daughter was uh, visited by a child who was biologically a girl um, but had said she wanted to be called by a boy's name now. They're the same age. When it was time to take a bath, my daughter asked her, do you want to take a bath with me? And the little girl was hesitant. She said, okay, or the child, I should say. And then when she said, then she asked her, said, you used to be a girl, right? And she said, yeah. She said, okay. And, and they were cool with it. <laughs> totally cool with it. It was not a big issue. Um, so I think kids are way ahead of the adults on this. The adults have more issues um, and the adults are screwing it up in Florida and other places because we're not going to go backwards. And um, if we try to censor people, I think we're going to just make it much more difficult. A lot of what you're saying resonates with me. But, you know, for instance, there's this, uh, there's this fight brewing, I forget which district in Wisconsin, where, you know, the trainers said, look, you have, you know, you have to help the kids when they when they want to identify by a different gender. You have an obligation to help them hide that from their parents if they want to hide it. And when this came to light, uh, the super, you know, they said that telling parents of an eight-year-old even that the child wants to identify at school by the other gender that this is child abuse. I, that strikes me as insane. This is not about recognizing that mores evolve over time, that our children may have different norms and expectations, just as we did from our parents, that this is about questions of should school districts in loco parentis have the right to decide that these are decisions that parents should no longer be involved in. That strikes me as nuts. The, the, these are the essence of parenting, helping children understand themselves and make decisions. Uh, in fact, I mean, there's these, you know, some of the advocacy, uh, for instance, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, 
uh, Xavier Becerra, um, formerly of California, has called for a public funding of the physical transition of youth using public HHS funds. And one of the fights is whether or not parents have a right to say you're not allowed, you're not allowed to conduct surgery or administer these, you know, intensive drug uh, therapies to my minor child. Because when we speak about the science, the science on this is very much conflicted. There's lots of accounts of adults who have had surgical procedures or hormone therapy who have gone on to say they massively regret it, that it has had catastrophic impacts on their health. There's others, obviously, who swear for it. So it doesn't seem to me that there is any way, shape, or form settled science. So, so I mean, again, I have no issue with your point that our kids may see the world justifiably differently than we do. And we as adults need, need to kind of think through how our expectations interact with that and what's appropriate. But some of this stuff strikes me as one of the three reasons I think gay marriage um, and, you know, advocates like Jonathan Rauch, who wrote that wonderful book on it 15 years ago, um, one of the reasons gay marriage was so effective was its advocates talked about it in terms of fundamental rights. This is the right of these adults to live their lives, to find the partners they love, to engage in institutions which serve, which serve us all. We're talking about things where adults who are non-parents, who don't even live in the community when there are these trainers or consultants or experts, are coming in and trying to draw huge and permanent barriers between parents and their kids in ways that would offend my sensibilities and that I think are not always in the kid's best interest. And so that's where I, th- I think that this is where I think in good faith, somebody can argue that they are, that, that, that this is not uh, any, that this is not an anti-gay or anti-trans agenda. It's an agenda about defending fundamental rights for parents and, and kids against uh, some of the stuff which feels like runaway ideology to, to those of us on, on the right. Well, let me ask you a question, Rick. How do you feel about parents who believe their child is gay and then put them, um, treat it as a psychological disorder and, uh, or send them to a camp to unlearn being gay? And this is a common practice in many Christian communities. Um, and the reports of abuse there are pretty uh, striking. So it's, I, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I think it's deeply troubling. Um, I'm with you. Well, I also think it's troubling when I read about uh, ideologically committed parents on the left who are taking great pains to either raise their children gender free. So, I, I, but no, I, I think it, I think it's a problem, and I understand that's what you know the gay community or trans community is in part responding to. But you talked about Florida as an overreaction. I think a lot of this training and these practices being pushed in schools feel, you know, are an aggressive cultural attack and overreaction. And that what happens is then these two extremes wind up ping-ponging off one another. And those of us who are looking for a more measured course wind up getting caught in the in-between. You know, I, I, I think you might be right. And I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, young children getting uh, sex replacement uh, surgery or therapy, you know, because I know kids are very malleable and they might feel one way at one year and then they could change. So I was thinking like I was a girl and now I think I'm a boy again. And 
And I, I also think some of what's going on is kids are rejecting traditional gender roles. That is, uh, if what it means to be a boy is being tough, being stoic, being dominant um, and aggressive, and you're not that kind of boy, then a boy might question, well, then maybe I must be a girl. And, and in fact, what we need to do is think about the way traditional gender roles might need to change so that boys can be nurturing and gentle and empathetic and also embrace qualities that we associate with uh, females. And I think similarly, many girls are rejecting traditional gender roles. And uh, we used to call them tomboys when I was growing up. And in fact, now, you know, we're realizing that a lot of those traditional gender roles kept girls from doing uh, math and science, kept them from speaking up in class and being leaders, and that we do need to rethink a lot of these traditions so that kids can be themselves. And uh, so I, while I question a lot of the experts that come in, and I think there's no real vetting that goes on often when these consultants come in and offer trainings of who these consultants are, I do think uh, that we're in a period of a great deal of change and schools are in the forefront of trying to figure out how to respond to these changes and parents need to work with the schools rather than get into adversarial relations unless they have to, to figure out what's the best approach here for children. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that's right. That's the ideal for all of us. I mean, I think I, I, I like the way you just talked about kind of these evolving gender roles, right? I mean, it, it's funny, right? You go back and you watch, you know, we live, in, we live in the era of peak TV. So you get to go watch Mad Men, say. And you realize how fundamentally different the world was 60 years ago and how much I'm glad we're not constrained by things that, you know, our parents or grandparents, you know, were shocked that we were no longer wearing hats. So, you know, right, every generation thinks the world's going to hell. Every generation, when we get old enough, we think the world's going to hell. So that, 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 that's there. But, but, you know, so for instance, you know, the American Psychological Association, what was it, three, five years ago, labeled, you know, mas- you know came up with this toxic masculinity thing. And, one of the, and I'm all for allowing children um, the freedom to define what they think it means to be a boy or a girl. Ah, I, I like that. I like the way you talk about it. But I think it also needs to allow boys to be traditionally masculine. I mean, one of one of the dangers of stripping away the idea that it's okay, you know, you, you've taught, you know, I've heard you talk lovingly about like the first time you were working with little kids when you were still in college and like these four-year-old boys and taking them out, throwing a football that, look, anybody who's seen little kids knows that like little boys you know, I got two sons. They're always hitting each other. And I w- it's not because we're encouraging them to do it. That's what little kids do. A little boy, they, they wrestle and they poke and they want to go throw things. And there's a lot of little girls who want to do that too. And not every little boy wants to do that. And that's cool. I'm good with all that. But there are boys who take great satisfaction out of being strong or stoic or being providers. And I think we also need to make sure that there's room in our kind of definitions uh, for kids to grow up that way without being accused of being toxically masculine uh, or feeling somehow that they're not 21st century men. And um, as long as we have room for all of this. I don't know. I don't know about that. I think toxic masculinity is a real thing and a real problem. I thought Will Smith smacking 
Chris Rock was an example of toxic masculinity. I don't think. Yes, yeah, I don't. I, I want to. I, <laughs> I don't think many folks think of Hollywood as a real source of toxic masculinity. Well, I tell tell me this: Would Will Smith have smacked the Rock if he had made that joke about Jada Pinkett? I don't think so. <laughs> I think he was picking on a little guy. <laughs> No, I think that's right. But also, I think, right, I mean, but Chris Rock, I mean, right, I, I can't think of any comic who is ever kind of thought of as a source of masculinity, right? Chris Rock, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, these are not stoic men. <laughs> uh, you know, The Rock, I think it's interesting, right? The Rock, it, his portrayal is very much more of that kind of... More well-rounded, less of that toxic masculine. But 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 the reason why I brought it back to that is because... I think that's something we're grappling with in society. You know, what the, what are these gender roles, you know, and what's appropriate? I mean, I don't know about you as a, as a parent, but I do far more chores than my father ever did. I'm far more involved with mm-hmm. my kids than my father ever was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a better person because of it. I don't resent it. Um, I think it's it's been better for me as a parent to learn how to be more nurturing with my kids than my father ever was. And so I think that um, not all change is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some changes, uh, we might question, I think, the impact of social media on kids. You know, it's ironic that we're so concerned about what schools are doing and exposing kids to talk about sexuality, when in fact, most kids are learning about sexuality on the internet. And they've been exposed to porn at increasingly young ages. And so the same parents are worried about what teachers are saying, need to pay attention to what their kids are watching on social media. Well, so this, this, I think, is a fabulous point. I mean, is, is this all right? I mean, rights always come with responsibilities. And I mean, one of the things we used to talk in the 80s and 90s a lot about parental responsibility, and that fell out of fashion. The left didn't want to talk about it because it felt like we were beating up on parents in need. The right didn't want to say it because we wanted to talk about schools instead of families as like the source of educational challenges. But yeah, parents have rights, but parents also have responsibilities. They got to get their kids off of the devices. You know, I like what you're saying. I, you know, I kiss my kids a lot more than I was kissed. Um, I'm not ashamed about it. I, you know, I, I'm reading, you know, I'm reading Mary Poppins or James and the Giant Peach every night to my little guys. And God bless. You know, I think that's a wonderful thing. But, you know, part of it is as parents, we have to take responsibility to pick up a book and read with our kids and hug our kids and talk to our kids and not just park them in front of devices and let them have free reign over the cesspool that's the internet. For me, though, I, I, I love that. And I wish we talked about that a lot more. But I also then don't want to have to worry about sending my kid to school where they're going to be preached uh, to by folks with ideological agendas. And the funny thing is, I don't think many teachers have them. I think most second grade teachers want to talk about reading and stories and helping kids like learn to be nice to one another. I think the folks with these agendas are usually out of towners who are, you know, on these consulting gigs, hopping place to place, and they don't actually have to do with any, do any of it or clean up or talk to the community. All they have to do is kind of collect their paycheck and move on to the next town. No, it's a problem. As we've talked about before, these issues are complex and they don't lend themselves to simplistic solutions. And I think too often I see states rushing in in the idea that they're going to save something um, making things worse. And, and that, that concerns me. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, while, while, while on balance, I'm supportive of what Florida did. I, I wholly agree that policy is always a lousy response to these questions of practice and culture. You know, it's, it's the worst possible response. 
sometimes except for doing nothing. Uh, but I see we're out of time. Uh, the wonderful Tracy Sherrod tells me that uh, it is time to, uh, you, you know, put a pin in it. So, my friend, thanks again, as always, for making me think and uh, for, you know, for wrestling with me with uh, an issue that, you know, it's hard to have kind of a measured, constructive conversation about. Yeah, and I think, Rick, it helps that we're both parents. So we can uh, approach it with the humility of parents, because I always say raising kids is the hardest thing that I do. <laughs> uh, ditto on that, man. Hey, until next time. Until next time. Thank you. The two of us have much more to say, but uh, we're out of time. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling, and thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Wesley Armstrong. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss by sending an email to podcast at AEI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time. Take care, Rick. Take care, bud.